We do not want false news on Facebook. It is not in our interest. It is not what our community wants. Nobody wants to be deceived. So it is in our interest to get this off the platform. It's Aspen Ideas to go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Campbell Brown heads news partnerships at Facebook. In today's talk, she joins a group of seasoned journalists to discuss whether the internet is loosening our grip on the truth. What's the difference between reporters and Google and Facebook when it comes to delivering information? Is there a war on truth? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Pioneers of digital news once argued the internet would lower the barrier to entry and usher in new perspectives about the world. They didn't anticipate the web would destroy traditional media gatekeepers and give everyone a chance to indulge in news that fits their viewpoints. Facebook's Campbell Brown says the company is working to tackle the problem of fake news, but she thinks the most effective tool is education. Because at the heart of this is knowledge and understanding and knowing what's, what is opinion and what's fact. This is a skill set that we didn't have to have that now we have to teach. It may be up to us to discern what's true on the internet, but many Americans distrust news organizations altogether. A Gallup poll shows confidence in the mass media dipped to a new low last year, with only 32% of Americans saying they trust these institutions. Since then, the number of citizens who trust the media has ticked up. Campbell Brown sits down with 1A host Joshua Johnson, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today Susan Page, and New York Times columnist David Leonhardt to discuss the future of news. Here's David Leonhardt. So uh, the name of our panel is, Is There a War on Truth? So I guess I, what I want to dive right in and ask each of you is, what is actually different now? I think there are a lot of things that we think might be different, but actually are not. We've had, we've had tensions about the divide between news and opinion forever. We've had tensions between the press and White Houses forever. They go up and down. So Susan, I'll start with you. What to you actually feels truly different about the period that we're in? Well, two things I think are very different. And it's great to be on a panel with the great David Leonhardt. Thank so. you. Um, I try to suck up to the moderator right at the start. <laughs> in case there's a tough question later on, Campbell. Um, I think two things are different. Uh, one is the technology is different. That's changed the pace at which we work, the way in which uh, news is distributed, the number the people who can distribute choose to distribute news. Um, but I do think that uh, this, the attitude toward the truth is different in this uh, administration at this time uh, than it's been in the past. This is the sixth president I've covered. Um, and uh, what's different this time is not that um, administration officials tell untruths. It's that even after there is evidence to the contrary to show that what they're saying is not true, or even when they fail, uh, when challenged to provide any evidence to show it's true, they persist in uh, making assertions that we think are not true. And that is different than any other administration I've covered. I actually think that's a really important point. Which is, uh, 
I've said before that I don't think, I know a lot of people on the left say that when George W. Bush said there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, it was a lie. I don't think it was a lie. I don't think it was a lie when Barack Obama said, if you like your health insurance, you can keep it. But even if you do think it was a lie, they both stopped. They didn't keep doing it, right? They sort of reacted to it, and clearly there's no sense of it. This and, and just one, one other difference is people who are most uh, supportive of this administration believe the administration and not the news media that is trying to do the fact checking. Yeah. Joshua, what do you think is different? I think two things are different. I think this era is different in terms of velocity and agency. Velocity because the lies travel faster. There's that old saw about a lie travels halfway around the world by the time the truth gets its shoes on. Well, now it's really true. Now it really happens, and we have to be faster than the liars, and we have to be better than the liars. The lies are not new. We've always had to deal with people who trafficked in BS for their own aims. I mean, the Bible says men love darkness rather than light, lest their deeds be exposed. So this is not new, but the speed with which the crime can be committed is so different. In terms of agency, I think it's much harder to wrap your arms around now because everyone has the potential to be a good guy or a bad guy or an accomplice to the crime, right? You may not have written that article on Facebook, but maybe you shared it or you liked it or you commented on it, so you kind of become part of the crime. You may not have been the one who created the lie that becomes the viral story, but if you make your voting decisions based on bad information, then you become an accomplice to the crime. Everyone has a larger piece of agency in being complicit with the virulence of a lie that affects our democracy. The good news is that that also gives you more agency to be one of the good guys to stop the lies, to not endorse it when your friends share stupid stuff on Facebook and let them know, I'm gonna hide this link because I love you too much to believe you're this dumb. Yeah. We, have, we have the opportunity to have agency in fighting back in ways you couldn't do in the age of Walter Cronkite. Like you could complain to your local CBS station and William Paley would pat you on the head and send you away and go to sleep on his, his bed that's, that's made of, of gold and $100 bills. But now you have an opportunity to actually fight back. So it is a problem, but the solution is potentially so much more robust, that gives me a lot of hope. Campbell, you've seen this issue from, from more perspectives than any of the rest of us have. How do you think about what is different this time? Um, I should pro I'd like to talk about it from the platform's perspective because I do think the pl Facebook's role, you know, the platforms generally, their role has changed. There's been a, a serious evolution um, at Facebook in particular. I mean, if you think about it, when Mark started this company, Facebook was about friends and family first and connecting you to cute pictures of your nieces and nephews and dogs and cats. And that's the way it was for a long time. And it's really only been in the last couple of years that people started getting news and information on Facebook. The community started turning to Facebook, sharing things on Facebook around news and information. That was not always the case. And when it became the case, the company, because the community is evolving now, has to evolve also and recognize that it has a role in a way that I think it didn't before in, in the news ecosystem. I mean, Facebook is obviously not a news organization, but it is now a serious part of this news ecosystem. And so I think that what comes with that is a responsibility that you know, Facebook, any of the platforms ever, you know, never felt before because they, 
they weren't part of it before, and now they very clearly are. And so, um, you know, there's a responsibility to be to think about journalism and to support journalism and to support news organizations and to figure out how to be a better partner in that in being a champion for great journalism. And this just wasn't part of our mission. And, and Mark just was very explicit about saying how this is now part of the mission. He wrote this open letter in February that he published and he said, you know, this is, not only are we connecting the world, which is what we've always been trying to do, but now we have to try to build uh, informed communities. And those were the words he used. And I don't understand how you can have an informed community if you don't have quality journalism that's thriving. I'm really interested to hear you use the word responsibility. Because if you sort of think about the history of information in our democracy, there have always been really important institutions that have decided that profit was not their first or even their only motive. Right? Their motive was often other things that were not pure. Right? It was power, or it was pushing their own sort of political philosophy. But often they also often had this civic duty notion. I mean, if you look at the families that own newspapers, including the family that owns my newspaper, profit is not their first motive. They care about it, but it's not their first motive. And we've now moved to this world in which the role of the old local newspaper publisher or local TV station owner, if we're being honest about it, is now a role that Facebook and Google have. And I'm interested So to can I challenge you on that? Please. Having worked for two big media companies, mm -hmm. the notion that big media companies are not in it for profit is yep. just not something I buy. So <laughs> it is definitely the case that many that there are many large companies that are in it for profit above all. But I also think it's the case if you look, let's go historically. If you look to the families that own newspapers for many years, right, they also were taking something other than profit out of it. As I said, it might be power, it might be other things. Um, but it was often a highly local role that they liked. And so even if you don't totally buy that, we can put that aside. You use the word responsibility. I guess my question is, I think I hear you, but I don't, but, but I don't want to put words in Marx or your mouth. I think I hear you saying that Facebook embraces this notion that it has a responsibility to help people sort through truth from untruth. Is that right? Absolutely. I think that is, and look, as, as I said before, it's been, it, it wasn't always the case. This has been an evolution. And um, in terms of Facebook's thinking, um, I joined in January. We launched the Facebook Journalism Project, which is kind of to put structure around this thinking so that we could figure out what our role is in this, how we can better support journalism than we have in the past um, uh, around authenticity and truth. And we can, I'm sure we're going to get into this. Um, there is a lot of work that we're doing now, uh, both on the technology side and sort of in terms of the ecosystem and supporting education and news and digital literacy work that we think is really important. And we think we can and should do it. I mean, Facebook certainly has the resources to do a lot of this work that other people can't. And so that's a good place for us to step in. Joshua and Susan, what do you think the role of a Facebook or a Google should be in this? Do you want them? Uh, and those two companies really tower over all the others, but do you want them and some of the others making decisions and saying, this fails to clear some bar of truth? Or do you want them stand as journalists and citizens, or do you want them standing back and saying, eh, we don't want them making decisions because then they're gonna start getting in debates about what the evidence shows. <coughs> what do you want from them, Joshua? Well, I, I think where companies, and I used to live in Silicon Valley before I, came to my senses and moved to Washington at exactly the right time. <laughs> it's the weather. You move for the weather. I move for the weather. Exactly. 
because Floridians love snow. <laughs> I think where companies like Facebook and Google are at their best are when they apply data science to very human mission-driven aims. You know, Google's mantra, their, their manifesto about doing one thing really well and not being evil and their very simple mission of making all the world's information available to everybody anywhere at any time. There is a piece of that that dovetails into what journalists do because part of our mission is to purvey information. But it's not our job to be in the information business. Google is in the information business. Facebook is in the information business. I'm a journalist. I'm in the insight business, which is a step above information. So if Google and Facebook want to be helpful, their role to me is in cleaning up the pipeline of information. Let me do my job as a journalist and be insightful, interpret, contextualize, storytell. If Google and Facebook stay in their lane, it allows them to continue to do what I think Facebook wants to do, which is not become a news organization. That's great. If Facebook doesn't want to be a news organization, cool. I'm a news organization. <laughs> I volunteer. But what I could use help with is the information part, is helping people suss out what's real, suss out what's fake, helping people understand information, making sense of truth and verifiability. You know, Google made its its bones in the world through PageRank, this algorithm that determines the quality of websites based on the other pages that link to it. Well, if people are linking to pages that are bad pages because they're filled with malicious code, Google has the means to stop that. It could probably apply that same wisdom to malicious information. I don't know how that's supposed to work, but I think there's a way for Silicon Valley to stay in its lane, to hew to its mission, and still help us so that we don't have to try to make Facebook be something that it doesn't want to does, doesn't want to be. Like let Google be Google and let Facebook be Facebook and let NPR be NPR and let USA Today be USA Today and let the New York Times be the New York Times and allow this ecosystem to evolve without forcing us to do things that we don't really feel like doing. Susan, what do you want? You know, I think that um, uh, F Facebook has enabled the rapid distribution of malicious disinformation. Um, and therefore, there's an obligation to try to prevent that from happening. But I do think it's a, I think it's a complicated question because is there a First Amendment protection for, for telling untruths? Yes, yeah. most yeah. of them. That's right. So, uh, it's, you know, so, so you want to walk a line where Facebook and Google are making efforts when there is concerted campaigns aimed at mm -hmm. evil purposes, which there are, but without interfering with people's ability to believe in things that other people don't think are true um, or, or think are wrong. Uh, you know, that would not be Facebook's role. It's Aspen Ideas to go. Thanks for listening. You can find Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts, SiriusXM's Insight Channel, NPR One, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search Aspen Ideas To Go in your favorite podcast player. Now back to today's conversation. Here's former CNN anchor Campbell Brown. 
Brown now runs news partnerships at Facebook. Can I explain what we're doing? Yeah. Because I think it'll give people context and then they can tell me whether they think it's good or bad or whatever, but this is what we're doing, just so people understand. So there's, um, there's sort of, we're coming at this from a number of different angles, but the first is what, what can we do on the technology side to reduce the amount of false news on Facebook? And, and just, I want to be 100% clear, we do not want false news on Facebook. It is not in our interest. It is not what our community wants. Nobody wants to be deceived. So it is in our interest to get this off the platform. So what we found on the technology side is actually that most of it is financially driven, not politically motivated. So you may see political stories, but it's driven by people who are trying to make money. So they'll throw up a pro-Bernie Sanders story. If that doesn't make them money, they'll switch it and throw up a pro-Donald Trump story. So if it's financially driven, then on the technology side, our engineers can do things to try to disrupt their financial incentives. So, I mean, basically what, what happens is you'll see a link and it'll be kind of a clickbaity headline. You'll click on it and it'll take you to what we call ad farms, where it's just nothing but ads. And, and they're trying to get you to make, they're trying to get you to click on that link so they make money. So if we can disrupt their financial incentives, um, that goes a long way to getting a lot of the junk off the platform. And it's very similar to how Facebook went after spammers. So there's a lot of knowledge there. And I think there's going to be a lot of progress there very quickly. The, the bigger challenge, I think, is when you have individuals, groups, organizations, governments that are trying to use the platform to manipulate civic dialogue in some way. And there, it's a, we, we put out a white paper on this after the election that, that examined you know, what, what we thought was going on. And for us, that has meant our security teams really ramping up to try to deal with fake accounts, to go after these fake accounts, identify you know, what they are, who they are, what's going on, and, and get them off the platform, eliminate them. So, so that's a different way of attacking the problem. Then, you know, sort of on the outside of that, is, um, is work around fact-checking, which is kind of a backstop, is working with third-party fact-checking groups to you know, allow people to flag stories that they think might be false or misleading and then have third-party fact-checking groups um, uh, downrank that or, or give a notice to it saying this is, you know, this is a misleading story, think before you share it, basically. Um, there's, there's one other element to this, and this is kind of... Little, a little bit wonky, but in terms of how we do ranking, there are certain signals that newsfeed, which is where you see all your stories, can look at like, and this is about trying to get lower quality, clickbaity kind of stories down here, sensationalism, and quality news up here. And, and it's without us saying, well, you're quality and you're not. Because I don't think people want us to do that. But there are things we can do where we'll look at the amount of time someone spent on a story. So we're like, oh, wow, on David Leonhardt's story, eight minutes. They spent eight minutes on this story. But on this story, they spent eight seconds. It's more likely to be trash or clickbait if they only spent eight seconds on that story than if they spent eight minutes. So that's a signal that can tell you it's more likely to be quality. So there are a lot of these kind of signals. They examine you know, what's in a headline that will try to downrank the stuff that's not great and elevate stuff, hopefully, that's of higher quality. Can I just say one more thing, and I know yeah. I'm going on. 
the single most important thing that we can do to solve this problem. It is not sexy at all. It's not as sexy as like technology solutions or you know, IA or machine learning, but it is education. Because at the heart of this is knowledge and understanding and knowing what's, what is opinion and what's fact. My kids are never gonna open a textbook in their entire lives, probably. Every piece of information they get is gonna come from online sources. And in their school, they're not learning how to be discerning about what they consume, what the difference is between NPR or USA Today or the New York Times versus some you know, fly-by-night news operation that started two days ago. This is a skill set that we didn't have to have that now we have to teach. And so I do think there's a lot of work we can do about developing curriculums that we give to schools that can help address this at, at a more fundamental level. I find all this Facebook fascinating, and I invite any of you to ask questions during it. We're going to move on now just to get into some of the other stuff. So I want to ask each of you to um, beat up on the media a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, uh, about Better what, the media than the platforms. What, I hope I go for that. Or the about, platforms are great. Yes. About, what, about what you think the media really um, needs to improve most on. And I, I just want to preface it, and I'll, I'll beat up on the media too. Um, uh, because we know if we don't, the questions will happily beat up on the media for us. Um, I just want to preface it by saying two things. One. Um, I do not think the decline of trust in the media is primarily about the media. Um, I actually think it's primarily about larger forces in society. Some of you may have heard me say this earlier today. You see the same directional declines of trust in big business, organized labor, organized religion, Congress, essentially every major American institution except the military. And so if that's the case, the, the cause of the decline in trust in the media probably isn't just about the media, it's probably about some larger thing. That's the first caveat I want to say. I think we should be clear, you're talking about commercial media. Because by many measures, the most trusted media institution in the country is PBS. So I think when we're talking about, yeah, when we're talking about decline in trust, there's a difference between media organizations that people feel that they have built themselves as a community as opposed to media organizations they feel were built for them or over them. I would love to see, I love PBS personally, I would love to see the numbers. I don't doubt that the percentage of people who are familiar with PBS has a very high trust level. I am not sure how high PBS's trust penetration is with all of America. Well, I do know the ratings are good. The ratings for the NBC Nightly News, the CBS Evening News, and ABC's World News Tonight have been down since the election. PBS News Hour with Judy Woodruff is up. Yeah, look, if PBS is the most trusted organization in America, I'd be thrilled, right? I'm just, I, I'm not sure that's the full solution to it. So, so if the first thing is the trust, the second thing I would say is, I think a lot of our colleagues um, are just doing really heroic work right now, and I want to honor the heroism of that investigative journalism. And um, much of what we know, first of all, there's the heroism that goes on all the time, the P, and I've never done this, people who are risking their lives in war zones to tell us what's happening in Afghanistan and in Iraq and in other countries. Um, but it's also the heroism, quite frankly, of our colleagues um, in investigative work who are telling us what's happening in Washington and letting us know of it. So as we get into sort of beating ourselves up, I, I really want to be clear that it is separate from that. I hope I have now given you each enough time to come up with something to beat up on the media. So I decided to crowdsource this question. And I sent out a, a tweet uh, a couple days ago saying it was going to be on this panel on the future of news. Is there an internet-driven war on truth? What does journalism need to do about that? And I got a lot of interesting responses that were along the same lines. And I'll read just three of them, maybe, three or four of them. Journalists can write accurate stories and limit unnamed sources. Errors undermine credibility and play into the hands of internet trolls. I think it would be help if political reporters didn't jump into or encourage the wave of joke making about things like the Rubio Ivanka hug on Twitter. 
do less interpretive reporting, more getting facts out, pay less attention to social media bandwagon, especially Twitter-driven stories, and maintain the wall between news and commentary, between reporting and entertainment, increasingly blurred today. I think those are all pretty fair comments. And I think that there is an imperative for journalists when the news, when the news media is under attack and the question of truth is at, uh, at some peril, for us to be more careful, more accurate, more willing to be slow rather than fast, um, and to have a pretty thick skin. Before I engage with that, what's your answer to the what we, Joshua, what we should do better? I think we should be willing to walk away from news organizations that don't meet our needs. As, as, as consumers? You yeah. Mean. You don't owe these companies your time or your money. Vote with your attention. Walk away. If your news organization of choice is not doing the things that Susan's Twitter followers just described, you should let them know, like, look, I got other choices. This is important to me. And I feel strongly about your role in our democracy. And I'd like you to consider doing the following things. And if they don't meet your needs, walk. I think a lot of, I think a lot of the problem with the conversation about the media is we think of the media like it is a member of the United Federation of Planets. And we're Starfleet. And they're like another sovereign world over which we have no control. Different species, they've just decided to grace us with their technology. Bull! The media is us. We're the media. I'm a citizen of the United States. I don't live in, on some rarefied, in some rarefied fortress where you can't talk to me. If people are upset with what we do, <laughs> they'll tell us. And that's one of the great things about public media is that we have immediate direct feedback when we do something wrong or right. And I feel like also with regard to what happens in social media, people need to take a little more agency. Now that does not mean that the media are immune from criticism, and I think the criticisms are well known. My critique is more how we can get more people to be active consumers of media. I mean, the Trump bump in the last year or so has benefited certain news organizations, but not all. The ratings for every broadcast aren't up. The subscriptions for every newspaper aren't up. I think it's those institutions that people feel a stake in. I remember people calling the newsroom at KQED early in the morning when I was the morning newscaster, bleary-eyed, working my way through the newscast. Phone would ring, KQED News. Yeah, I got a bone to pick with you about your program. I just heard what you said on the radio, and I, I just, I got to tell you, I've been a member of this station since 1855, and I just can't, I'm sorry, I needed that Joshua, jo what's his name? Could I talk to somebody about that Joshua Johnson fella, because I just can't take it. This is Joshua. Can I help you? You're, you're. You're Joshua Johnson? Yes. Can I help you? Oh. Huh. Well, first of all, I'm a big fan. <laughs> Let me just say that first. Uh, he was so stunned that he got me on the phone because he's so used to being ignored. And he's so used to being put out. And he's so used to yelling into the ether and having no one respond that he figures there's no accountability. So he just goes to the comment section and he cusses and assumes that's it. Never thinking that there's a person on the other end who is as good and as decent and as caring as he is and who really takes this work seriously. I think we should walk away from news organizations who don't take this work seriously. If they won't answer, if they won't listen, if they won't improve, walk. Drop your subscription, change the channel, find another source. And that alone will change your engagement. It will change your view of your community. Remember, how you see the world depends on where you look. 
So if what you see does not serve you, tell them. And if they don't improve, walk. If we want to talk about the marketplace of ideas, not everybody should have a kiosk selling their wares. Some people need to go out of business or at least know that what they do isn't good enough. We need your feedback and we need it to be backed with action, both if we don't toe the line and also let us know if we do so we can keep doing the right thing. Campbell, you're never shy. <laughs> Uh, what are we doing wrong? Um, you know, for me, and I think this is, this is kind of an obvious one, and, and we people in the media have talked about it in the wake of the election, which <laughs> is um, that we, and I'm guilty of this too, I live in New York City, tend to be very focused on D.C., New York, Silicon Valley, L.A. And um, I was a local news reporter for the early part of my career in Topeka, Kansas, and Richmond, Virginia, and Baltimore, and I... Um, you know, especially at this moment where I think that we all so want to try to find common understanding around certain issues again, that the, the best chance we have of doing that is at the local level, is, you know, we, if we're neighbors, we could be totally on opposite sides of the political spectrum, but we may still agree that the best, you know, sandwich shop in town is Joe's around the corner. And I just think that's like a start. <laughs> So what worries me right now is that local news yeah. is in real trouble. And um, I feel like if we don't have um, strong local news organizations in our communities, that is going to be a much bigger problem than maybe we realize because we get so focused on national news organizations, especially all of us, because we all, you know, that's where we work and live. And, and so I, I do think that's a place Facebook could do a lot of work and be helpful because it's one thing we're really good at, which is communities and groups and connecting people who are in certain geographic locations. So if we could figure out how to partner with local news organizations and, and help that sector of the news industry sort of revitalize in this moment, it would be the, one of the most powerful things we could do. I agree. I think that would be enormously important. I mean, you, when you look at some of the statistics, I bet some of you have seen it about the number, the decline in the number of newspaper reporters. I'll confess my first instinct is sort of a, as a techno-optimist, which mm -hmm. is to just pick one example, Vox.com didn't exist 10 years ago. I think Vox.com is very good. I think it's better than a lot of the things that have gone out of business. But you know what? It's not local. And, and there, do, there really is a great paucity which creates all kinds of issues with local. David Leonhardt is today's moderator. He writes for the New York Times. Joshua Johnson hosts the public radio program 1A. Susan Page reports on politics for USA Today. And Campbell Brown works with news organizations for Facebook. If you like today's show, check out the episode, What Have We Learned from Listening to America? Since the heated 2016 presidential campaign, the United States has been described as profoundly divided. But are these divisions as deep and hopeless as we think? A group of journalists, including Joshua Johnson, describe what they've heard from the Americans they've talked to. Find the show by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes. And there's a link in our show notes. Now back to our episode. Here's David Leonhardt. 
Susan, you said something that I, I, I guess I'm not disagreeing with you, I'm disagreeing with, yep. with one of your tweets. Um, this idea that you guys should stick to facts, mm. um, not opinion. I know that's a very popular thing for people to say, but I don't think it's how people actually behave. I think if, if I think people want insight to steal Joshua's word, yeah. and they want things like your program pro provides, quite frankly. If the New York Times switched to giving people the kind of news report that we gave people in 1950, um, our, we would lose um, huge portions of our um, of our subscribers because that is a commodity. Right. Telling people what someone said yesterday at 4 p.m. is a commodity, and so I know that that's sort of a a line that people use, but I don't think they actually mean it. So I'd make a distinction between opinion and interpretation. Because I don't, you know, uh, I, I would no longer write a story, as I did for many years, saying, this happened at the White House yesterday. We would, we would just never do that. We would do a story that put it in context, that called it into question, that gave you some kind of extra value, because we know you've, you've read about it at the time it happened, and you saw it on the news, and, and there's no need for us to regurgitate it in that way. So I want to provide context and insight, but you don't care what my opinion is. Like, what's the health care plan that Susan Page wants to put forward is not, doesn't, doesn't matter, nor, nor do I actually have one. But to look at the health care plan. Which actually yeah. makes you have a lot in common with many people in Washington. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, think, I think people, are, if you're talking about how to rebuild trust in the news media, and there has been a real erosion in, I think, trust in all forms of the news media, we do it by making sure people can believe what we say. Um, you know, there's, it does seem to me there's been this huge impact just in the past year on views toward the, there's been long-term erosion in trust in the news media and every other institution. But there was a, uh, I was just trying to prepare for this panel for your tough questions. And um, a year ago, Pew asked if the news media had a watchdog role. Does the news media fulfill a purpose of keeping calling government officials to account. And a year ago, 77% of Republicans said they did, and 74% of Democrats said they did. So basically, there was no partisan divide and overwhelming agreement that this is an appropriate role for the news media. So that Pew just asked this question again, and now 89% of Democrats believe in it. So the proportion of Democrats have gone up. 42% of Republicans say the news media has a legitimate watchdog role. So that is, the, what is, was basically no difference has become almost a 50 percentage point gap in the space of a year, which is to me um, shocking and, and really quite alarming. And I think that we have to figure out how to do things to rebuild trust even with people, uh, with all kinds of people, with everybody. I wonder if part of what we need to do to that concern about our watchdog role is kind of define what, what we're supposed to do. I feel like the, the contract between the press and the public needs to be rewritten because we're in the age of Facebook. And it's not Facebook's fault. I mean, if, if Mark Zuckerberg hadn't made Facebook, someone would have cracked that code eventually. Facebook did it first and best. But I feel like we need to kind of re-explain to people what we do and how we do our jobs and that the news business is, is different and also kind of define what our watchdog role is. I mean, I think, I think there are some people, to me, the idea of being a watchdog is not the same as being an attack dog. An attack dog barks at everybody and bites anything it can reach. That's not what we do. It's also not being a lap dog. If you rub it just right, rolls right over. Our job is to be a watchdog. A watchdog has discernment, a watchdog is on a mission, and a watchdog is providing a service. 
It's very different from being in it so that I can attack or so that I can please. And I think the concern that I have at least is that people will look at news outlets who claim to be watchdogs, but they're really just attack dogs. Or they claim to be watchdogs, but they read between the lines and they're like, well, you're just parroting the administration's line. You're just a lap dog. You're not, you're not what you said you were. The problem is truth in advertising. And if you're gonna, but, but here's the other thing. I don't have a problem with a lap dog or an attack dog. I don't. Just be upfront about it. Right. If that's what you wanna be, like Sean Hannity, attack dog. Cool with me. Fine, you have the right to do what you're doing. I prefer the role of a watchdog, and I know where he's coming from. So if you don't like what Sean Hannity does, don't watch him. If you prefer what we do on U in USA Today or NPR or some other source that you get, go to that. I think if we were more upfront with people about our mission, about what we do, about what we don't do, about where the lines are for us, the boundaries that we don't cross, our standards, I think people would at least know what it is that they're buying with their time, and they might feel a little more comfortable in today's environment. The most depressing thing that I thought that I have about that statistic that Susan just read is, I don't think the decline of trust in the media from one half of the political spectrum is about anything the media has done in no. the last year. To be clear, I think the media has made some real mistakes without they covered Trump. There have been some specific mistakes the media has made, gotten some stories wrong, as is often the case. But what has changed is how the president and before presidential candidate treated the media. And so what worries me is we didn't cause the decline in trust and makes me kind of skeptical that we can fix it. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think the media coverage of the presidential election missed the mark in a lot of ways. And you think that explains the decline? Yeah. I, I think... I, one of the things that I, I try to do on 1A is to treat everyone who comes on our program with a modicum of respect yep. and try to view the stories we talk about as being important to them for reasons that are legitimate. Whether or not you agree is, is secondary compared to just the fact that we try to treat people like there's something at stake for you that matters. I feel like the coverage of the election lacked real empathy Yep. For the people who supported any number of Republican candidates, I feel like a lot of news organizations got so drunk on the power of rising ratings that they decided to turn Donald Trump and his supporters into a sideshow. And it turned into entertainment that was so lucrative that they forgot their responsibility to just listen forthrightly, not only to his supporters, but also to the larger issues that didn't get discussed. You ask the American people what, ha what matters to them day to day, they're talking about the potholes in the road, they're talking about you know, the supermarket that closed down the street, they're talking about the school that their kid goes to and whether or not their kid's gonna make it into college. But I didn't hear a whole lot about education. I heard nothing about education on the campaign trail. I heard very few people who were able to tell their story and just be heard. I heard a whole lot of CNN panels that had 10 people on the screen at one time yelling at one another for the sake of entertainment, especially on CNN, an organization that has 4,000 journalists around the world risking their lives to tell stories that matter. I feel like last year, I think crystallized for a lot of people, oh yeah, the media really don't care about us. They, they really are just in it for the money. Les Moonves, who's the chairman of CBS Corporation, said Donald Trump may be bad for America, but he's great for CBS. I find that vile. 
I find it vile to make a sideshow of the lives of other people, even people who you may disagree with. And I think it got so tempting to paint Hillary Clinton as the logical, rational alternative to Donald Trump that it became too caricatured. And we bought into those caricatures and forgot there are millions of Americans who were legitimately concerned about their futures and believe in this candidate or that one because they think this person's gonna meet their needs, rightly, wrongly, whatever. It's not about the candidates, it's about the voters. And we stop letting it be about the voters. And I think after the election, you notice some organizations where you had people dig in and other organizations where people were like, oh, that's who you really are. I think the election did a lot to scare people away. And it's bad for everyone who's in this business who now has to try to convince them to come back. What's so interesting about that critique, which is really eye-opening, is that it has some overlap with the common critique of the media from the left, but it's also fundamentally different in some ways, right? The common critique from the left is the media was too easy on Trump, they loved the ratings, um, and a, we spent all our times obsessing over her damn emails, right? And what your take is, it's similar in some ways, but it's also actually quite opposed to that in other ways. Well, we did spend a lot of time focusing on our emails, yeah. for sure. Yeah. But the, problem, the larger problem is we didn't spend time focusing on the democracy. Elections are about our democracy. They're about our nation. They're about finding someone to lead everyone, to solve all the problems that we all face. I don't care about, we have to remember the president is a government employee living in public housing. <laughs> Literally. During the week. Right, well, you know, that's a whole nother, whole nother. But the point is, that's not the point. The point is, the president is responsive to you, and we weren't. We were responsive to the candidates, not to the voters. That's on the people who run the networks. That's on the people who run the newsrooms. That's their fault, not your fault. So I don't blame people for walking away from the election going, ugh, and wanting to wash their hands of certain organizations or certain reporters. I, I might feel the same way. What's interesting is it's not, it's not and now we're going to open it up to you all, it's not people writ large. Your thing showed Democrats now more Democrats right. see. So it's part of this continuing polarization of the country. It means people see the news media through the same partisan lens that they see everything else. And that has not, I think, historically been the case. I mean, there are times, of course, there are, there's a conservative critique of the news media, but now we see the news media, just like we see the economy, I think you may have done this story, that people now see the economy through a partisan lens. So that people who support Trump now say the economy is good and people who oppose him say it's bad. And what we found in polling during the Obama administration is that even people, it was the reverse, that Democrats overestimated uh, the health of the economy and Republicans underestimated it. So now there is, even things that are factual are now subjected to the same partisan lens as our politics. Russia too. Look at Democrats yeah, and right. Republicans. Okay, so we're going to open it up to you all. Um, and I just want to emphasize that you do not need to restrict the questions to what we talked about here. Um, ask us, you know, ask Campbell about Facebook, ask us about NPR, USA Today, The New York Times, about anything we didn't uh, bring up. Um, uh, don't be shy. Um, so one of the problems with uh, media organizations like, I think CNN and MSNBC are partially guilty of this, is with an issue like climate change where there's widespread scientific consensus, almost 97% of scientists agree with uh, climate change. They're having these panels on, and that's kind of the sensationalization that you're talking about, where they'll have one climate change denier versus two people who support are producing the scientific argument. Is there something wrong with enfranchising these small minority views that are um, contrary or maybe even disinformation? 
So I think that's such a great question. And um, I actually think it's one of the places in which we've seen a big change in the news media. Um, because there was, I think, what we now all call false equivalency, that uh, here's a scientist who says climate change is real. Oh, let's quote somebody who says it's not. Um, I actually think that news media, and I can't speak for an individual network, but I'll talk for, for USA Today, that we, we try very hard no longer to do that. And that if we quote a climate change denier, we say the overwhelming majority of scientists believe it's real. And that is, that's true even when the climate change denier is a high-ranking government official. And I actually think that that's one of the changes we've seen in the past. Very high. Yeah, very, 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 very high. high. <laughs> it's also one of the changes that, has, that Donald Trump has wrought in political coverage. Because there was a time where a candidate would make a statement and low in the story we'd say, but that isn't true. Or, you know, as an offhand thing, we'd say that isn't true. And now we feel an obligation at the point an untruth is stated to say it's not true. Or to say this is, there is no, the White House provided no evidence for this assertion. And that, that in a way makes us seem uh, adversarial and probably fuels some of the partisan views of what the news media does. But I think that as a community, we've decided that we have an obligation to do that when an untruth is stated over and over again. I, I don't think this is easy, though. So I agree with everything you just said. But I think this is really hard for two reasons. When we do that, we hurt our trust yes. with approximately half of this country. Right. They say we are less trustworthy. They say we are promoting opinion. They don't say, oh, there is a fact. And so there's no, if, if what we cared about was building trust with all of America, we should do what you deplore. And frankly, what I deplore. No, we should. No, 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 no. I, no, because no. we've, no, we've been through this on 1A. By we're saying not, that Donald Trump says climate change is a hoax, and then we say the vast majority of scientists do it, we turn off millions of Americans who think we are partisan. I think we're right to do it, but we turn off millions of Americans, and I think we're sort of in a, in a progressive bubble if uh, we think otherwise. No, that's not been my experience, because we've had this happen on 1A, where we did shows about climate change, and I had a guest where I was like, oh my God, I don't think he believes in climate change. And so I, I had to find a way to elegantly ask like, can I just ask you, what, what, is your, what is your view on the human roots of climate change? And the guest kind of expressed some skepticism. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe we booked this person. There is no scientific evidence to prove a vector for the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere that is as reliable as the evidence showing that humans are causing climate change, period. Full stop. We are not arguing that point. That is true. I think people need to know that we stand for something. And I stand for the truth as best we know it. Now, if the evidence shifts, cool. Let's talk about new evidence. Until there's new evidence, we're not arguing science on 1A. And I think people need to be able to know where organizations stand. If our mission is to create a more informed public, we got to stand on the side of information. There is no evidence to prove anything other than human beings are the cause of climate change. Show me something better. Until then, we're going to stand on the truth. And if you don't like that, that's cool. We may not be for you. And that's fine, too. If you're not ready to have that conversation, I have no judgments against you whatsoever. But you need to know where we stand. We stand on the side of evidence. There is overwhelming evidence for the human roots of climate change. And if evidence is not your standard, we ain't for you. I'm just saying I don't think you build trust with a full population. I agree with all that. I don't need to build trust with everybody. Yeah, I need to build trust with the people who are ready for what we have and let everybody else make their own choice. This is the marketplace of ideas. If you don't like what we have to sell, that's cool. 
Yep. Go somewhere else. We will be ready for you if and when you come around. Yep. But I don't have to bend my view on the truth to make you my friend, because then I lose the people who really matter. The New York Times has made the exact same decision. I'm just saying that of the 40% trust we had, we ain't helping that number by right. making that decision. Yeah, I agree. And we have to, we just have to acknowledge that. Right. Um, in fact, we've decided that it's worth it. Yes. That's right. We've made a we conscious do. decision that is that it is worth it because it meets our obligation as journalists. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. For more great listening, find the Aspen Institute's newest podcast, Aspen Insight, on Apple Podcasts. It features stories from across the world about groundbreaking work around health, refugees, race, and cybersecurity. Hear from global changemakers connected to the Aspen Institute. Find the show by searching Aspen Insight in Apple Podcasts, or look for a link in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's show. David Leonhardt. The other thing I would say is that not every question I think is as easy as climate change, right? right. So I know enough about what I think about the evidence on education and what Campbell thinks about the edu evidence on education to say that we would both say that the evidence shows that charter schools mm -hmm. have worked better than many of the traditional schools they would replace. I can also tell you, having written that sentence in the New York Times, that it makes many people think that I'm to the right of Attila the Hunt, right? They don't think that's truth. They would say it's fake news. And so I actually think the evidence on that is really interesting. I don't think it's as easy as climate change. But I think there are a lot of questions where when people say, why don't you just report the truth, they're actually, the truth is a lot murkier than climate change. And it becomes much harder to kind of figure out what it is. Well, I'm doing a bad job letting you all ask questions. Hi, uh, Susan, your comment about you know, the tweets uh, that you got from your followers about people's commentary being taken out, um, the comedy being taken out, but then when you go to Trump rallies or you hear people being interviewed, they're repeating a lot of the information that's being said um, by Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson. And so my question is a little bit about the platforms, but a little bit more about what other journalists can do. Like, how do you differentiate that from being, you know, news versus opinion? And will the platforms help, you know, those voters figure out the difference between the two as well? So this was, um, this was my 10th presidential campaign this year because I have no other skills. So thank you all for continuing to hold elections. So and the thing that happened uh, this past, in this past campaign that never happened to me before is, and this happened um, mostly at Trump rallies, was people would say to me with great certainty things that I knew were not true. Um, the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure the Pope has not endorsed Donald Trump. Did not um, The Obamas put Michelle's mother on the public payroll. That was something I heard over and over again. Um, things that were not true. And so the question is, what do you do in that situation? And, um, and I don't think that during the campaign I took this phenomenon seriously enough because clearly it is one of the things that happened last year that we need to pay more attention to. We need to figure out, uh, figure out what to do about. So I do, have, I do have a lot of concerns about that. And I think all we can do is... Um, so one of the debates that we've had in journalism is whether to repeat a, fa a fact or whether to... Does that spread a, a falsehood? 
or is it better to confront a falsehood? And for a long time, until the birther movement, I think our attitude was, don't repeat a falsehood, you just give it currency. But when the assertion was made that President Obama wasn't born in the United States, and regardless of what we in the kind of mainstream media were doing, it got a lot of currency, then we felt the need to both report on it and confront it in a way that the Obama people initially were very opposed to. They did not want that story written at first until it became impossible not to write that story. But you know, a poll last year found that seven in 10 Republicans are unwilling to say that Obama was born in this country. Some say he wasn't born in this country and some say they aren't sure. But this is extraordinary for a fact that we know is false, that 70% of Republicans continue to believe that. So it's something that, that we struggle with. I would just say one other, one other thing, that in a way, the, the technological innovations that have made it possible to spread falsehoods have also acted as a check on inaccuracies. And you know, if any of us have written something inaccurate in a story and it gets posted, you hear about it like in a nanosecond, and then you have a chance to correct it. Like if you've made an inadvertent error or you've made a misstatement of something in history. I th one of the stories I covered before this revolution was, went with, um, uh, the elder George Bush down to Florida, where he was speaking at a grocer's convention, where they showed him a supermarket scanner. And I wonder how many of you remember the supermarket scanner program. Okay, it was untrue. Um, they showed him a, I was there, I know from my own eyes, they showed him not a regular supermarket scanner, but a super duper supermarket scanner that had just been developed where you could crumble up the barcode and throw it on the scanner and it would still read it. And George H.W. Bush was the most polite man I have ever met in my life. And so he did the appropriate thing by saying, isn't that wonderful, that's remarkable, look at that incredible supermarket scanner. And a paper that shouldn't be mentioned, but its initials are NYT, did a... <laughs> did a front page story the next day that said Bush hadn't recognized a supermarket scanner and this is emblematic of the fact that he's lost his connection with the American people, right? He's, he's so out of touch, he doesn't even know what a supermarket scanner was. And because it was all those years ago, this story, the New York Times declined to correct this story. I had to fight my editors every day to keep this story out of my paper. I was criticized that morning. Why didn't I have the story on the supermarket scanner? The only one reporter wrote that story and was wrong. And you know what, if that happened today, that reporter would have lasted about an hour because we would have all just looked at the video and seen what had happened um, uh, in that. So, that. so while there are ways in which this is all of great concern, you know, there are also some good things about what's happening with the new way things work. I'm actually sitting here feeling a little scared from some of the things that you've said because I think there's a huge number of people in the United States who will never listen to you because they are not rational, critical thinkers. I don't think that it's reasonable to like even joke that news medias will say whether they're a lapdog or an attack dog. It's not in their interest. They want everybody to believe that they have the truth. But I guess my question is, when people make emotion-mediated decisions, and not interested in facts and critical thinking because they are afraid. How, I want them to listen to you. I really want them to all listen to NPR and listen to 1A. But I don't think that they will understand even what you're saying. I don't think they would understand what you've said tonight. But we're preaching to the choir. How do you reach everyone else? Campbell, can I ask you to take the first crack at this? First, because you haven't been in for a while. Second of all, because Facebook has to be blunt, the broadest audience of any of the four of us up here. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, this is tricky. You know, people talk a lot about this issue and have around social media about filter bubbles, right? And polarization and social media being the cause of it, that we put blinders on and we can create for ourselves a little world where we don't have to engage or interact or listen to him or listen to her or listen to him uh, if we don't want to. Um, I, I just, you know, I do think we are polarized as a society right now, but I think that that has been building for a long time. I don't think that this is actually connected to social media. Um, I think we have a lot of evidence that says that. Reuters just came out with a report last week, the Reuters Institute, that found that on social media, people get more diverse sources of information than they do if they're reading a newspaper or if they're um, only watching one cable channel. And I do think that sometimes we sort of nostalgically long for the days of Walter Cronkite and the New York Times and your local newspaper were all you had and that gave us this shared set of facts that united us all. But I you know, would just remind people that there were no women in those newsrooms and there were no people of color in those newsrooms. And we were getting a very filtered perspective of the world in those days that left out the point of view and experiences of a lot of people in the world. And so it's complicated today, and certainly we divide ourselves off from each other, but there is a diversity now that makes things both complicated and the world both complicated and I think far, far better, even if it's more complicated and harder to deal with. So that's kind of, I didn't really fundamentally answer your question, but <laughs> sort of how I think about it, I think. I, I think we have to be careful about describing people as a they or as a them. I, 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 I can feel the worry radiating off of you. And so I believe that what you're saying, you're saying sincerely, I have no evidence for this. This is what I believe, but this is what motivates me as a journalist. I think we have to be better at just treating people like people in the news. I think we have to be better at trying to listen to one another. John Maxwell once said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think a lot of people in this country don't know that we care about one another. I think a lot of people need to be reminded that we still have a lot in common. We have plenty of things we are furiously divided about. But there's plenty that we still do pretty well together. We still merge in traffic pretty elegantly, right? Life is not just, <laughs> life is not just one big demolition derby. There's plenty of arguing, but people still have, you gotta live day to day. And we know that. Like, I wish you could see after some of the shows we do on 1A, we'll have a liberal and a conservative and usually a reporter kind of in the middle giving facts and figures. And they can be for an hour. And then as soon as the hour is over, they stand up, hey, Susan, it was great to see you. How are your kids doing? You know, that was a really good point that you made. I haven't seen you since Peter's party. Listen, I'm heading down to DuPont Circle. Do you want to catch a lift together? I think we have to be very careful about allowing ourselves to stop being the nation of we the people and start becoming the nation of, oh, those people. That's dangerous for democracy. And all I have to go on is my belief that this idea of we the people is the way we have to go forward. It's that whole idea of when Ben Franklin walked down the steps of Independence Hall and the woman walked by and said, so Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? And he said, a republic if you can keep it. 
George Washington said there were four things that were necessary for this new nation to survive. One was an indissoluble union of the states with the federal government at the head. Two was a system of justice. Three was a system of keeping the peace, basically law and order. And the fourth was trust. We have to have what he called that pacific and friendly disposition that allows us to work together in common interests, even if we have to, if we have to, if we have to, compromise <laughs> to get things done. It's not fun, but we were warned that this would come to us. We knew that this was the kind of thing that could rip our democracy apart. The only thing I have to go on is my belief that you are probably no better or worse a person than me. Certainly no worse, especially because you care, and especially because you're worried. Well, if you're worried, Put that worry to work. Put your worry to work. Go do something about it. If worry helped, 1A would be the scariest show on public radio. But it doesn't help. All I can implore you to do is just listen to those days, those people who don't want to listen to the facts and figures. Where'd that come from? Why do you think that way? Once they know you actually care about them, instead of about just assuaging your own worry about them by changing them, people have a way of opening up. People seek connection. We seek concord with one another. We, we seek accord with one another. We don't want to be divided, but we're so scared that we're afraid to be vulnerable and open up and say, I don't like what you have to say, and I'm going to listen anyway. That's step one. And if it don't do you no good, it sure won't do you no harm to treat somebody across from you like they're just as good as you are. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Thank you, my fellow panelists. David Leonhardt is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He won the prize for his columns on the financial crisis and its aftermath. Campbell Brown works for Facebook and previously anchored programs for CNN and NBC News. Susan Page has covered six White House administrations, 10 presidential elections, and interviewed nine presidents. She reports for USA Today. Joshua Johnson co-created a nationwide public radio series about race in America for KQED in San Francisco. Now he's the host of 1A. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.